0: I want to open up with a word of prayer here. And as I do that, can I get a couple people, I need ten people in this side of the room to cover me in prayer as I'm preaching. Raise your hand if you will. Okay, good. In the middle, about 20 people here to cover me in prayer. A couple more. Okay, good. Over here, about ten people to cover me in prayer. Good. You can listen to the message, but be, just be interspersing it with uh, intercessory prayer because without prayer, kingdom stuff doesn't happen. Amen. And this stuff is way too important to leave to the flesh. In fact, continue that intercessory work throughout the worship because it's important that we uh, don't get away any kind of demonic interference on that as well. So let's pray. Father, uh, this is your time, Lord. Uh, we're here not to be entertained or anything of the sort, God. We're here uh, to grow as kingdom people and to exalt you and passionately worship you. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that your spirit right here and right now, Lord, would fill this place. Right here and right now, Lord, fill this place. Lord God, let Your Spirit move. Have Your way here this morning, Lord. I pray that You'd open up our minds and open up our hearts to receive Your Word that it could not return void, but will accomplish all that You intend, Lord. Let it be done, Lord. Let it be done. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We had a very interesting day yesterday. Uh, It was a wonderful day. And I never thought I'd be saying that it's a wonderful thing when the KKK comes to town, but see, whatever God, whatever the enemy intends for evil, God can use for good. Amen. And uh, this wasn't just a break-even, let's hold the line kind of a thing. Uh, God turned it around to His advantage. Uh, there was just, uh, some really cool, godly meetings going on all over the Twin Cities. We had a, a prayer meeting. I'm, I'm, I think we're very privileged to have. On our staff, Peggy Riley, who uh, took a leadership role of, in some of the churches in the Twin Cities and bringing together a prayer meeting. And I'm telling you, folks, that was a prayer meeting. That was really a prayer meeting. Uh, just from the get-go, there was a, there was an anointing there that was just powerful. And some of us went to the, the uh, cathedral and prayed uh, over uh, the Capitol. And, and, and a number of things like that happened. And it was just a glorious time. Uh, it, it was very, very good. I was very happy with the, the turnout. As well, and I'm thankful to the people who uh, made the time to to be part of that. I have one worry about all of this, and I want to share it. In fact, it's going to be kind of kind of be uh, what I'm going to be talking about here this morning. My my worry is that people will think that racism is an issue that is uh, just about things like the KKK and the Aryan Nation, and then they think that if if uh, since they're not part of the KKK or the Aryan Nation or some other hate group, they feel that they they, they must be okay. Uh, they at least tolerate people of color or people who are different from themselves, and they think that that is a stopping point. We see the issue of racism is, is far, far, far more pervasive and subtle than just extremist groups like the KKK and the, Air, and the Aryan Nation, right? Uh, especially here in Minnesota, Niceville. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's way beneath the surface, and it's easy to miss. In the world, they're happy if you can just pass laws and and uh, get people to tolerate one another, just to coexist with one another. But see, in the body of Christ, tolerating one another is is not good enough. Amen? It's not about just putting up with one another. We're called to a much higher calling. In fact, the calling that we're called to really represents God's goal for creation. It's expressed in a powerful way in in, in the book of John, chapter 17, and I want to... Have us read that here. The book of John 17. From a Christian perspective, tolerance is not enough. Here's what we're called to do. This is Jesus' prayer for His church. He says this, I ask, He's talking to the Father here, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in Me through their word. Note that. This prayer applies not just to His disciples that are listening to Him, but He's praying on all who will ever come to faith through their word. Through the New Testament, in other words. This prayer applies to the church throughout history. That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us. Note note the correlation there. Lord, he's saying, Father, just as you and I are one, I want them to be one in us. The oneness of the church, the unity of the church, The love of the church is supposed to replicate the love of the triune God. Lock it in. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. Again, the church is to have the kind of relationships with one another that characterizes the triune God throughout eternity. That's way beyond tolerance. I and them and you and me that they may be completely one. The triune God defines what it is to be completely one. And the goal of the church and God's design and really the goal of all creation is to have that unsurpassable love replicated in people. And that's what the church is called to be. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I have made your name known to them and I will make it known. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them... Look at that. The the same love. Not a second-class love, not a derivative love. The love with which you've loved me may be in them. Christians are able by the power and the grace of God to have the love of God Himself residing within them just as they have the righteousness of God Himself residing within them. Tolerance may may suffice and may be all we can hope for for the world, but it's not what God aims at. In the body of Christ, we're called to a unhuman, supernatural kind of love for one another. Now, sometimes white folk, us white folk, get we ask this question, why do we need to keep on bringing up this race issue uh, so much? You know, gosh, you, you preach upon this, uh, or touch on it at least, every couple months it seems. And, and maybe uh, you're getting tired of this. Let's move on. Why do we have to keep on talking about this issue? And when, let me say two things about that. First, it's only white folk who can afford to get tired of this issue, who have the luxury of being able to say, you know what, I want to turn this issue off. If you're a person of color, you don't have that option. It's in your face whether you want it or not. And see, so if we're called to have the kind of of love that characterizes God. That means being willing to enter into each other's experience and hear one another and share one another's experience. So if it's an issue for one, it becomes an issue for all. We need to talk about the issue. Amen? But secondly, and even more fundamentally, is this. This is not a peripheral, secondary issue in the Bible. In fact, what I'm going to show this morning is this. This issue pertains to, to to the very center of the center of the biblical revelation. Now, we don't normally talk about it like that. It's not preached about widely in the church, and that's too bad. But what we're going to see is that the whole issue of what's called racial reconciliation is central to God's purpose in creating the world, and it's central for what God wanted to accomplish in redeeming the world. And if it's central to God, it's got to be central to us. Amen. Now, I have I, never really brought together, I, this is a, a period of time where we're laying some foundational teachings here at Woodland Hills Church, and this is a foundational distinctive teaching uh, here at Woodland Hills, and so I, I want to bring together all the reasons why, biblical reasons why, we hold this to be so central. And it just seemed to me that given the, the, the uh, KKK coming in here yesterday and, and uh, all of that, it, it's, a, it's a season and opportunity for teaching on this, uh, on this topic when it's all in our minds. So I'm going to lay out the biblical revelation about this issue. And I'm going to do it in five stages. There's five stages of the biblical revelation that touch on this issue. Holy Spirit, keep our eyes and keep our minds and keep our hearts open. First is Creation says this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. So God created humankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Now, if you were here in the third service, or the second Sunday service last week, Ephraim touched on this. He preached a totally different sermon, his third sermon, than he did the first two. But he touched on this passage. And i want to review some of what he said. Animals were created according to their kinds. They were differentiated according to their kinds. And so they hang out only with their kinds. And they breed only with their kinds. But when it came to human beings, there's, it wasn't different kinds. God made one human race. In fact, the Bible doesn't have the category of race. We invented that one, folks. That there are different races. There's only one human race. Different manifestations of that race, different cultures for sure, different appearances, but it's all one race. God made one humankind, and that that humankind is all in His image. We're in His image because we are body, soul, and spirit. We reflect something of the triunity of God in our constitution. We're in God's image because we're all given the same job description. And it's the job description of human beings when we were created, and it's the job description of the church, and that is to have dominion. To regain the world for the lordship of Jesus Christ. To have dominion. All of us have that job description, and in that way, we're made in His image. We're also made in His image in this sense. Only with regard to human beings does God say, let us make man. He uses the plural there. Let us make human beings in our image. Now, why is that? It's because part of... and this is part of the uniqueness of human beings. Part of our distinct being made in the image of God is the usness that we're capable of. That's why it says male and female, he made them to emphasize that we're created to reflect his image by how we form an us. How we're capable of lovingly relating to one another amidst our diversity. And when human beings enter into, replicate, the kind of love that God is towards one another, that reflects God's image, and that's the purpose for creation. To reflect God's image and then to carry out in a small way what God carries out in a big way. He's Lord of the whole cosmos. He creates us as His viceroy's, His stewards here upon the earth, to carry out His providence here on the earth. And the way we do it is by loving one another the way God is loved. See how this all plays in. When we separate according to kinds. And we create the kinds based on various distinctions that we perceive. When we do that, we destroy the image of God. When we are not lovingly integrated and manifesting the call and the nature of God in our relationships with one another, we to that degree deny one of the reasons why God created us. In fact, to the degree that we separate according to our kinds, and we get isolated according to our kind, and we only hang out with people who look like us and think like us and and, uh, have the same kind of culture we have and enjoy the same kind of music we have. Insofar as we do that, we are denying the image of God, and in fact, we're sinking down to the level of the animal kingdom. Animals, you expect to be differentiated according to their kinds, but not human beings. We have a higher calling. We become animalistic to the degree... That we divide on the basis of appearance or culture or anything of the sort. One time I had a discussion with a man who was trying to tell me that interracial marriages are are wrong. And one of his less convincing arguments was he said, you know, you don't see... I think he said it was... I don't know anything about farming. Are there red chickens? Or red roosters and, and white roosters? White, red, okay, it must have been roosters. The roosters are chickens. He said, you know, you don't see uh, white roosters and red roosters, uh, you know, breeding together. And just shows you that it's just unnatural. I said, I suppose that's convincing if you have the IQ of a rooster. You know, but it seems a little odd that we take uh, our social ethics from chickens. You know, God's got a higher calling for human beings. I want you to see the centrality of this unity uh, in, in the order of creation. It denies the order of creation when we stop relating on the basis of appearances or culture or what we call race or anything of the sort. Second stage is the Tower of Babel. Human beings were united at this, at this point. They all spoke one language. There wasn't the kind of distinctions that, that we uh, have today. But unfortunately, because of human sin, they were using their unity for an evil purpose. The Bible says in Genesis 11 that they were building this tower. It was a false religion, a false city. There's always power in unity whether you use it for good or for evil. Unfortunately, here they were using unity for evil. So God decided to use a a divide-and-conquer strategy. He saw the catastrophe that would happen if this continued on. He didn't want to get to the place where they had gotten prior to the flood. And so, as a provisional judgment on the world, he divided the people, he gave them different languages, so they couldn't have that unity to build this false tower in this false city, this reprobate demonic religion against God. So it says this in Genesis 11, 8, and 9, The Lord scattered them abroad uh, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. I want us to see that this was not God's ideal. It was the lesser of two evils, and it was a provisional thing, a temporary thing. God always had in mind, as I'll show you shortly, uh, the idea of in time reversing this, okay, of bringing humanity along to the point where he could begin to reverse this, but it had to happen at this point. When the people were divided, that's when we begin to have, uh, they were divided according to language, they went to different geographical locations, that's when we begin to get isolation from one another, that's when you have the, the, the development of different cultures. Here you begin to have selective breeding going on, which eventually results in the different phenotypes of people, the different appearances of people, uh, different cultures taking on different appearances. Now that's not a bad thing. In fact, we'll see in a little bit here that that's a, a, a good thing because it manifests something of the richness of the human gene pool that God created us with. There's nothing wrong about that in and of itself. But unfortunately, because of sin, Whenever you don't have God as your source of life, you get your source of life from something else. That's what the Bible calls an idol. And because of human sin, when we divide and begin to look a little different and act a little different, people made an idol of these things. They begin to feel get life from and feel proud of the fact that, uh, of, that they appear a certain way in contrast to somebody else. And they do things a little different way in contrast to somebody else. And then comes wars and conflict between this, the races, the, na- the nations, And now what was the power of sin in unity becomes the power of sin in division. And that's what the world's been plagued with ever since. It's a good thing that we have diversity in the world. That's a positive thing. God created the humankind gene pool with that rich diversity. It's bad when it becomes the basis of separation, division, and wars. And now, not only do we sink down to the level of animals by dividing according to kinds, we sink below the level of animals. Because even in animals, you don't have out-and-out warfare and genocide on the basis of kinds. The third stage is Israel's calling. God raised up Israel to reach the entire world, to spread the truth of who He is, because it had been forgotten, and and, and to reunite humanity according to His original creational design, to reunite humanity under His Lordship. That was the goal. This is what I call the mustard seed principle. God always uses the small to grow out and eventually subsume the large. The mustard seed principle. Israel was to be the mustard seed of His kingdom that would reach out and spread out His truth and His love to all people with the goal of reuniting all people unto Himself. You see this right from the get-go. The first time we have a promise made about the nation of Israel, it involves this role. It occurs in Genesis chapter 12. God is speaking to Abraham, who is going to be the father of Israel. This was the mustard seed man, if you will, that was going to be used to bring forth this nation. And here's the first thing He says to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now stop there for a second. God wants to bless Abraham and bless the nation of Israel. He wants them to be great. Nothing wrong with that. That's a God thing. But the purpose for blessing them... And making them great was so that they can be a blessing. Know this. Whenever God blesses you, it's so you can be a further blessing. He wants you to enjoy it, but the purpose of it is ultimately to extend it and further his kingdom and bless others. If any of you won the lottery last night, the Powerball, I want you to remember that teaching. Uh, Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Lord says this to is Israel, Is it too light a thing? that you should be My servant. And I will give you... See, they're they're there to be the servants of God. And I will give you as a light to the nations, to the peoples, all those non-Jews out there, that My salvation might reach to the end of the earth. God's goal was to make Israel a nation of priests. They weren't supposed to be this little elitist select group that was just part of a God bless me club. God wanted to use them and bless them richly in order that they might then influence the entire world. That, incidentally, is why this promised land was so important to God. Uh, is because at, uh, in the ancient world, this was the center of all trade. It was, it was the place where Israel could have the most influence in the world. That was the goal. Now, unfortunately, because of human sin and fallenness, Israel consistently forgot this message. They turned this call of God on their life into sort of an elitist sort of thing. They turned God's vocation for them into a a sort of a a just bless me club. And they began to look inward rather than looking outward. They began to believe that they were somehow, because of this call, better than other nations, more righteous than other nations, more loved by God than other nations, And so they got this inward focus rather than this outward focus. They became self-righteous and they became judgmental of the very people they are supposed to be serving. So God consistently had to remind them. It's all over the Old Testament. To remind them of why He called them in the first place. Yes, He loves them. Yes, He wants to bless them. But He also wants them to be a servant to reach all people. And so the Lord says this in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone. This is Him reminding Israel of, of their calling. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy and eat. See, I made him, David, a witness to the peoples, literally the nations. All those people out there. Those different, what we today would call races. You shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts." This last phrase, you know, God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts, it's often used sometimes wrongly in the face of tragedy where people just want to attribute this to the will of God. Oh, His ways are not our ways. However else you may use that passage, you've got to know this. In the original context, it was about racism. What God is saying to Israel is this, Israel, you keep on getting focused on yourself and separating yourself from the very people I'm sending you to and thinking that my call on you is just about you rather than being a a call for a vocation to reach out to other people. But you always got to remember this, Israel, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your thoughts are puny. Your thoughts are inward. Your thoughts are racist. My thoughts are for the whole world. My, my goal, my hope, and my aspiration is to reach all people because I have a love for all people. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It seems to me that the church needs to hear that same message. Amen? Uh, it so often happens in the evangelical world that uh, uh, people get the idea that, that the church is sort of this nice, self-enclosed, bless-me club. Aren't we righteous in contrast to the world? Aren't we special in contrast to the world? And we come to church to get blessed. We come to church to feel good. We come to church to get a nice religious buzz. And there's nothing wrong with all that. But it becomes sort of a, a subculture uh, that, that, that uh, we, we just feel safe in and we feel comfortable in and we just like to go into and conscious to the yicky, yicky world and those nasty, nasty people out there. But what we always got to remember, saints of God, is that God's ways are not our human ways and God's thoughts are not our human thoughts. And He's called us not just to have a bless me club, not just to be an elite group. He's called us to reach the world. Amen. He's called us to love the world so often we evangelicals get into this mindset where we start judging the world and saying, oh, those yicky-yicky people out there, those nasty, nasty habits and whatever. And part of the reason we do that is because it feeds the flesh because now we can feel good about ourselves. But saints of God, God has not called us to judge the world. God's called us to bless the world. Amen? God has called us to reach out to the world, praise God. God has not called us to feel superior to anybody. He's called us to serve everybody, praise God. He's called us to be the people who fulfill the call to Abraham that in us all the world will be blessed. Our job is to bless, to bless, to bless, whoever, whenever, however, to bless, to spread the kingdom of God. Yesterday we spent a lot of time blessing the KKK. They need to get blessed. They need to get free. They need to get delivered, Amen. And God loves them. God loves them. Jesus Christ died for every one of those folks. And my flesh sometimes has trouble accepting that. But God's ways are not my ways. And His thoughts are not my thoughts. And thank God for that. We're called to reach out, to go out, to be a vehicle of blessing and a servant to all people. The fourth stage I want to talk about is the ministry of Jesus. And here it starts to get warmed up. Now we really see what God's up to. Jesus' ministry really, uh, in a lot of ways, reflects God's heart toward the world. He's, He's seeking to, again, regain the goal for which He created the world. That the human beings would reflect who He is by how they relate to Him, by how they relate to one another, by how they have dominion over the world. That's the goal of creation. Jesus reminded His disciples over and over again, go out in all the world, go out in all the world. He repeats the the message that He gave uh, the Jews in the Old Testament. Go out in all the world. Don't sit uh, compartmentalized and isolated in your Bless Me Club. You're servants of the world. So He tells them that over and over again. But even more profoundly, the Lord, through His death and resurrection, in principle, reverses Babel. He starts fresh in Himself. To achieve the goal for which he created the world. The the unity of humanity that reflects his deity. I like that. The unity of humanity that reflects his triune deity. Remember that one. The unity of humanity that reflects his triune deity. Okay, I'm the only one here who likes that saying, but I I do like it. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 through 17. This is one of the most condensed, packed, profound passages in the entire Bible. I know I say that a lot about a lot of verses, but that's because the Bible is a very packed, condensed, profound book. But look at this passage. And now in Christ Jesus. Now, just know this. Paul's talking specifically here about the Jewish-Gentile relationship, but the principle of hostility between the what we call races applies to all divisions. He's using this as the prototype of division because the deepest divide in history uh, occurred with God's own people between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now look what Jesus died for. But, in, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, have, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace. In His flesh He has made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and has broken down the dividing wall. Everyone say He's broken down. Broken down. The, dividing the dividing wall. He's broken down. Broken down. The dividing wall. That is the hostility between us, praise God. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances. Why? That he might create in himself one new humanity. Here, the goal of creation is achieved. He creates within himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. He reconciles them to one another and he reconciles them to God. And according to the Word of God, you can't have one without the other. Where you've got the one, you're going to have the other. And He does it both within Himself. Thus putting to death. He put to death. He extinguished, He abolished. The hostility through it. So He came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The picture you get here is this. Here's the body of Jesus. Here's the body of Jesus. And I don't know how God did it, but He did it. In Christ Jesus, through His death and through His resurrection, He took the two opposing groups. And you can put any two opposing groups you want there. Jew and Gentile, black and white, it doesn't really matter. And he put them in himself. He reconciled them to himself as he reconciles them to God. You can't have one without the other. It's as though he grasps in his body. He puts in his body both. They become part of him. See what I'm saying? They become part of him. How united are they? They're part of the body of Christ. The part of Christ's own identity, he puts them in himself, in his own body. He's torn down the wall of hostility. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter three. I hope the coin is dropping in the slot. We begin to see how central this is. It's anything but a peripheral issue. Paul says in in Galatians chapter three verse twenty-seven. This is why he says, as many as you who are baptized into Christ, the word there's submerged into Christ, put into Christ, engrafted into Christ, as you will. You do that by faith. You're made into the body of Christ. As many of you, as were were baptized in Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. You're wearing a new garment, folks. It's the garment of Jesus Christ. It's the pure, white, stainless, spotless, white garment of Jesus Christ. There is, therefore, no longer... Everyone say, no longer. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all, are, all of you are one in Christ. All of you. Not according to your kinds. You're one in Christ. This is the new human race, if you will. It is really the restoration of what God always wanted human beings to be. Because now we begin to embody, we begin to manifest the truth of who God is by how we relate to one another. No longer is there Jew or Gentile. No longer is there slave or free. I don't care what color skin you wear, you're wearing Jesus Christ, and that makes every other difference. Inconsequential, amen? No longer does it matter what culture you wear, you're wearing Jesus Christ, and that makes us one. No longer does it matter what language type you wear, you're wearing Jesus Christ, and that makes us one. No longer does it matter what music you wear, uh, what uh, style of clothes you wear, what culture you wear. You're wearing Jesus Christ. You're clothed in Jesus Christ. You're robed in Jesus Christ. And that makes us one in Jesus Christ. Amen? So no longer is there a wall of hostility. Can't be. Not if you're in Christ Jesus. And this goes a billion trillion miles beyond tolerating one another. No longer is there a wall of hostility. No longer is there division. No longer is there room for suspicion. No longer is there room for mistrust of one another. No longer is there room for discomfort with one another. In Christ Jesus, Jesus died for us to be united in Him, praise God. It's part of the central goal for which God created the world. It's part of the central goal for why Jesus died. And now you begin to understand how Jesus can pray this, this uh, uh, absolutely, Incredible prayer, Father, in John 17. I pray that they may be one even as we are one. How is it possible for human beings to be one as God is one? He's God and we're not. Well, here's how it's possible. He places us in Jesus Christ. This is why it says in 2 Peter 1.4, we're made participants of His divine nature. We don't become God, but we participate in the love which is God, praise God, as we're engrafted in Christ Jesus. His love begins to be our love. His character begins to be our character, just like His holiness begins to be our holiness, praise God. And that affects our relationship with Him, and therefore it affects our relationship with one another. The church is called to be the new humanity whereby we're one even as the father are one. Some people say, in fact, a lot of people say, in fact, most people say, you know, it's hopeless. Human beings are just too entrenched in their racist attitudes. You know, uh, the, 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 the differences between the people groups is just too profound. And, and, and you can't hope for this genuine kind of reconciliation. The best we can do is tolerate. And you know what? They have a point. They have a point. I, I, I don't have any hope uh, for the government to fix this problem, folks. Not, not, not that the government shouldn't do all they can do. Fine. But uh, my hope is not in the government. My hope is not in programs. You're not going to pass a law that's all of a sudden going to make people uh, love one another. Because love is about the heart. You can pass laws to, to restrict behavior, but you can't change the heart. There's only one who can change the heart, and his name is Jesus Christ, praise God. And that's our hope. That's where the unity comes about. And if you get this down, you begin to understand why Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may be one as we are, one what? So the world will know that I'm sent from the Father. It's when the church of Christ begins to do what the world can't do, that the world begins to see that this thing is for real, that Jesus Christ is for real, that we're not just talking words, but there's a reality here. There's a love here. There's a unity here that we can't achieve with our governmental programs. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. You see the centrality of all of this in the biblical portrayal of heaven, in the biblical portrayal of heaven, because now God's goal is finally achieved. The, the goal of having a, a, a humanity that manifests His unity and diversity is finally achieved. Look at Revelation chapter five, verse nine. You find in all these passages about heaven this wonderful diversity. The redeemed sing a new song. You are worthy, talking to the to the Lamb. You are worthy. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. For by your blood you ransomed for God. You paid the price from for saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. Part of the reason why people will be praising God throughout eternity is because He didn't die just for them. He died for all people. 1 John 2, 2, He didn't shed His blood just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Part of what makes God glorious is his willingness and desire and heart for all people. And so throughout eternity we praise God for the diversity of the people that he has redeemed. The goal of creation has finally been realized. In Revelation chapter seven, nine through ten, John says this I looked and there was a great multitude. Oh I love this. A great multitude that no one could count. Praise God from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white. They put on Jesus Christ here. They're robed in white. See, they they, they keep their distinctness, but their distinctness is no longer a a basis for division. It's a cause for celebration because it's complemented with the robe of Jesus Christ. And they're all crying with a loud voice. It's loud there, folks. Get used to loud. It's going to be loud in heaven, saying, Salvation! Salvation! belongs to our God. The our is all-inclusive. Our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. There's a great diversity in heaven. There's a great multitude in heaven. There's, a, there's a, a, a profound unity in heaven, the unity that reflects the unity and love of God Himself. And God's goal for creation is realized. And the way that that is manifested in heaven is that everybody's worshiping together, praise God. You better get used to worshiping people alongside people that are different than you because you're going to be doing it throughout eternity. Amen? Amen! Amen! And see, our conviction is that the church is to be a preview of heaven. It's to be a preview of heaven. And so if we're going to be doing it throughout eternity, let's start doing it now. Amen? Let's start doing it now. There's there's one dimension of uh, a diverse group. There's, there's, a, there's a beauty in diversity itself when people from different tribes and languages and nations and cultures get together and worship God. There's a dimension of God glorifying that goes on there that can't possibly be done with a homogenous group. Because part of what we praise God for is the diversity. There is a glory of God that is reflected in a uh, unity group. That's why there's a power of God. When groups are are united, just because they're united, whatever other differences they may have, God shows up. A ministry like Heart of the City. God shows up every time in a powerful way. Why? Because they just are bringing together the differences there. No longer are people worshiping according to their kinds. They're worshiping together, praise God, and that glorifies God. That's one of the reasons why it's part of our vision that we must always be striving for and working for. Increasing diversity in the body of Christ. Why? Because it's God-glorifying. It's God-glorifying. Pure and simple. It's a central part of why God created the world. And a central thing that He achieved in dying for the world. Revelations 21, 24, and 26. Look at this. The nations. The nations. The peoples. From every tribe and language. The nations will walk by its light. Referring to the glory of God here. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory in. Now look at that. The kings will bring their glory in. What's He talking about? He says this, people will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. I love this passage. I had never noticed this passage until this week. You see, in the world, the, the distinctness becomes the cause for division, and it's a negative thing. But from God's perspective, when you bring the nations in, okay, when you bring them under Christ, when you bring them together, now they are honorable. There's an honor there. God honors the nations, they have an honor of their own. Now, outside of Christ, it becomes a cause for division. What God intends for good, the enemy intends for evil. But when we when we when we bring them in the body of Christ, when we bring them into Jesus Christ, they now have an honor. There's an honor that is there in their distinctness. There's an honor to whiteness and there's an honor to blackness. Amen. There's an honor to yellowness and an honor to every shade in between. There's an honor to black culture. There's an honor, a dignity, a God-glorifying thing in Hmong culture, Native American culture, and Latino culture. It's all a good thing in and of itself when it's brought together in the body of Christ, praise God. And if we're to be a preview of heaven, we've got to be ones to proclaim, bring your honor here. Bring your honor here. We don't want to separate from that. We want to join with that, praise God, because it's a God-glorifying thing. We honor God when we take the uniqueness of our background and, 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 and culture and praise God with it. And now it becomes beautiful, part of the beautiful, uh, complex tapestry that forms the body of Christ. We have to realize that Jesus died for this. This is, this is part of why Jesus died. He died for four things. He died to free us from the devil, 1 John 3.8. He died to reconcile us to God. Right? he To atone for our sins. If He died to free us from the devil, we've got to preach it, even if it makes people uncomfortable. And He died to free people from their sins, we've got to preach it even if some people don't want to accept it. He died to bring about physical healings. By His stripes we are healed. So we've, we've got to preach physical healing. If Jesus died, if He spent His blood on this, we have... It's a non-negotiable. It's a, it's a, it's a settled thing. And He died, we just saw in Ephesians 2, he died to bring the people together. He died to tear down the walls of hostility. And if Jesus died to make it happen, we have got to preach it, praise God. It doesn't matter how tough it is. It doesn't matter what obstacles there are. We've got to preach it. If He spent His blood for it, it's a non-negotiable in our theology. It's not a peripheral thing. Human beings have no right to say, oh, this reason why Jesus died is more important than that reason why Jesus died. To the extent that we don't preach... Racial reconciliation in the body of Christ. We are denying Christ. Somebody say amen. Amen. We're negating one of the reasons why Jesus died. No different than when a person refuses to believe in Him. They're negating the reason why Jesus died for them. To forgive them. It's invalid to them. So also the church at large, if this is an essential part of our gospel, and what we're about, to that degree we are denying Christ. If Jesus died for it, we have no, we have no uh, uh, opportunity or, or chance not to preach it, not to live it, not to strive for it. A lot of Christians say, a lot of Christians say, a lot of books even say, oh, you know what, it's just not practical. It's not practical, you know. You, 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 it, people get uncomfortable when they're around people that are different from themselves, and, and you know, people in different cultures think differently, and they process information differently, and they, they worship differently, and it's just uncomfortable for people to be together. And in fact, they even have a whole principle now, the homogeneous church growth principle, which says that if you want to grow a big church, you know, just target one people group and don't try to be inclusive. In fact, it hurts, it stunts church growth by trying to be inclusive. And you know, it's just not practical. You're inviting problems. You're inviting difficulty, stay away from it. There are groups out there that write books saying this, and they're accepted. I don't give a rip how impractical it is. I don't give a rip. I don't, we, we can't care if it makes people uncomfortable. Uh, we can't care if it's not convenient. You know, it just does not matter if Jesus died for it. How dare anybody say, sorry, Jesus, you're not practical." I'm so tired of practicality and comfort and convenience being preached in the name of the Word of God. The church has got to make a decision. Are we going to be a little bless me club where we come to feel comfortable, or, or are we going to be about the Lord's business? Because you can't do both. You cannot do both. If we're about the Lord's business, sometimes it's going to confront us and change us and revolutionize us. And God isn't, has never called us. Find me one verse in the Bible where God called us to feel comfortable, where God called us to feel convenient. Or God called us to take the easier route. I can't find one verse. where the Lord calls us is to be radical disciples who swim upstream with the culture. Amen? He called us to be willing to die. That's pretty impractical. To die for the things that He died for. And one of the things He died for was the unification of the people groups. Praise God. And so it's central. We've got to preach it. He called us. He died for this and we've got to live it to be a people who are about bringing together people, to be a bridge uh, uniting people together. He called us to be one even as He is one. He called us to fulfill Abraham's call to be a blessing to all the nations. He's called us to be a light to the nations. He's called us to be a people who honor the distinctness of the nations. He's called us to do what our Father does. Whatever the Lord does, whatever the Lord wants, whatever the Lord died for, that is what we're going to be about. Nothing more and nothing less, praise God. Essential to the whole Gospel. Well, the groups that, that are, are saying this have one thing right, and I'm, I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, it's not easy. It is not easy. This is, they're right about that. They're right about that. It wasn't easy in the early church, and this is the fifth stage. We're going to go over this lightning speed. Uh, it, it's it's uh, It's not easy. It wasn't easy in the early church. Look, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out. And the first thing that happens, the first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit's poured out is that people begin to speak in tongues and the, the people hear them in their own language. Okay, now, now, what the Lord is showing by that miracle is this. Where the Holy Spirit shows up, Babel is reversed. Do you see it? I don't think it could make it more obvious. Babel is being reversed. The Holy Spirit tears down the walls that the sin of Babel set up. Okay, so you've got that there. It just confirms why Jesus died. It confirms what Jesus' whole teaching about going on in the, all the world. But the disciples don't get it. Racist mentalities die slowly. So, 20 years later in, in Acts chapter 10, about 20 years later, we find that the Jews are still, that the Jewish Christians are still in this little holy bless me club in Jerusalem. They haven't gone anywhere. Oh, Philip went to Samaria, but that's about it. So, God has to give a vision to Peter. In fact, he has to give it three times. He's a little thick. And say, you know what? Go out to the Gentiles. And Peter finally gets it. Lord, I perceive that you are—you show no partiality. <laughs> Duh! <Yeah. laughs> so Peter goes and preaches to the Gentiles. Now you know what this does? It creates problems. Yes, problems all over the place. But thank God that that didn't allow Peter to disobey the Lord and not do what the Lord called him to do. So in Acts 15 we find they have a council. Oh man, these Gentiles—they don't look like us, they don't smell like us, they don't talk like us. They don't—you know—they're a different uh, culture. What are we going to do here? And so they have to hammer it out. It ain't easy. There's disagreements on this stuff, but the Holy Spirit was in it. It says that in Acts 15, the Holy Spirit was in it and brought about a consensus uh, about how the groups can get along because they've got to get along in the body of Christ. And finally, you find this. This is just amazing. But even after all this, Paul still doesn't get. uh, Peter still doesn't get it. Several years later, he's at Galatia. And it says this in Galatians 2, Paul had to confront Peter for being a racist, a hypocrite. Oh, sure, yeah, he was preaching to the Gentiles, but he wouldn't eat with them. Uh, It's okay, they need to hear the gospel, but do we have to eat with them? Do we have to invite them over to our house? Do we have to fellowship with them? You know, it's just much more comfortable if we just do it with our own kind. And so Paul gets in the face of Peter and says, you hypocrite, (laughs) you hypocrite. Paul says that I I charge them with hypocrisy. The point here is this. This is not easy. There's a reason why 98% of the churches are 98% homogenous. That's not by chance. That's because that's the easy thing to do. That's just the way it is. There's also a reason, if I may say so, why this particular message isn't preached very often. But it's got to be preached, and it's not a peripheral thing. It's a central thing. It's a central, central thing. I leave you with three challenges. Challenge number one: receive healing. It may be that you've been wounded by a different people group. There's been a scar there. Maybe you're black and, and whites have uh, have uh, mistreated you, or you're white and blacks have mistreated you, or or or, or whatever. And see, if you go on with that wound, it becomes a stronghold. And a stronghold is a filter by which you interpret your experience and it will drive a wedge between you and those people. You you need healing from the Lord and the the Lord can bring healing to you. Open your, your, your life up for the Lord to bring healing there. And maybe there's even wounds that you don't know about. Let the Lord heal you and minister to you in a profound way. God can change your heart and change your perception. Just last week, someone said to me this. He said, you know, I... I've never been a racist, they said, but but I just never found people, you know, of of other cultures to be attractive. You know, they they just didn't appeal to me. But now this person said, for some reason when I look at them, I see this beauty. I just I think they're so beautiful. I just like to look at them. They're so beautiful. You see, God can change your heart and change your way of seeing. Be open to it. Number two lose the Western addiction to comfort and convenience. Do you know how many people choose what they're going to do and what they're going to believe and what their theology is going to be on the basis of whether it's comfortable for them or convenient for them? That's what the Bible calls an idol. We're not called to serve comfort and convenience. We're called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ even when it's uncomfortable and inconvenient. Whenever you do a new thing, it's going to be a little awkward. Get used to it. But there's a beauty in that and a power in that if we're just willing to go that way. Don't let comfort and convenience... I, I really am uh, bothered when people uh, you know, try to figure out who's preaching when because of, of, of whether they like the style or not. You see, uh, if you're committed to the body, be there as part of the body, whether it's your particular style or not. Think in a broader, a broader scheme here. It's not just about you. Don't come for just a little bless me club. You come because you're part of the army in the kingdom of God. And let God do what He wants through you in the body of Christ. And the third and final thing as the the, uh, choir comes forward is this, be a bridge. Be a bridge. We want to be this as a church. We want to be uh, about bridging people to God and bridging people to one another, uniting people, connecting people in the body of Christ. But that means each of us individually have to take on some of that responsibility. Let me ask you this question, not to indict, not to accuse, not to anything other than to ask it. And the question is this. How many people do you have in your life that don't look like you? How many friends do you have in your life? To what extent does your life intersect with people who look, who look different from you? See, unless your life intersects with them and you reach out, you bridge the gulf that is there. You'll never understand them. You won't know why they think the way they do and, and, and interpret things the way they do. You know what? If I didn't have people like Norm and, and Peggy and Abraham on the overseer board uh, in my life, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I, I'd have interpreted this KKK thing totally different than I did. Because to me, I'm a white guy, and it doesn't mean a thing to me. I think they're a bunch of clowns, you know? I I just ignore the whole thing. But see, because my life intersects with them, I take time and I, I hear their perspective, and it means something totally different to them. And since we're united in the body of Christ, I need to enter into their experience and make it my own. And it totally changes my perception of that. I encourage you individually to reach out to people in the body of Christ here in the church, not just after this service. In fact, maybe it will feel too obvious after this service, but throughout the week and next week and the week after that. I was like a Promise Keepers, you know, they talked about greet some and make friends with somebody, a person of color, and there was only nine people in the whole, in the whole stadium, so Norm gets swamped, you know. <laughs> Can I be your friend? I'll pay you to be your friend. I'm talking lifestyle here, folks. I'm, t- I'm talking lifestyle here, folks. Reach out. At first, it may feel awkward. Have more for supper. You know, be, get to fr- become friends with one another. And maybe you've never done that before, so it feels a little bit awkward. Don't make awkwardness the Lord of your life and control your behavior. Make Jesus Lord of your life as He now recovers in the body of Christ the reason for which He created the world, the reason why He created human beings, the reason why He died for human beings, that we all might be one in Jesus Christ. And now we're going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and the diversity that is here I'm praying that it increases, but what's here, we're going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Our first and foremost obligation as people of God is to worship God. Worship happens when we passionately enter into it, participate in it. It's not a sing-along thing. It's an investing in God thing. So I encourage us now for the next half hour to focus on God, to glorify God, to be poured out in, in worship uh, to, to the Lord. We'll start worship. With this act of worship, we're going to take up an offering. Because part of how we honor God is by blessing Him and furthering the kingdom with a portion of what He's blessed us for. So would the ushers come forward here? And Father, I just pray now that Your Spirit would envelop us. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would just take this time and uh, draw us in to passionate, profound praise and worship of You, Lord God. God of the nations. God of the peoples. The One who died, that all might be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.